0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. It's season 5, and we're starting a little late, I think we can all agree that the blame falls mostly on the shoulders of Philip II of Spain. But other than the lateness, we'll try to go as we usually do. We'll go through about 10 episodes, give or take, and I'll release one every other week once I start. That would be now until we finish the season. Then I'll crawl back into my almost forgotten hole and start writing and researching for the next season. To kick off this season, we'll look at the Sumerians and at Er Ur-Nammu, one of the great kings of the Neo-Sumerian Empire. He helped restore native dominance in Sumer after centuries of foreign rule. He instituted reforms and he rebuilt the Sumerian infrastructure Helping to usher in the final era of Sumerian rule in Mesopotamia. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the almost forgot. And with that, let's get right into it. This is Season 5, Episode 1, Ornamu. And this is The Almost Forgotten. By the time Ornamu lived, roughly 2000 BC, depending on the chronology, the Sumerians were not the only complex society in the world, but they may have been the first. But we'll get to that later. The heartland of Sumer was really southern Mesopotamia, what would essentially become Babylonia in the following millennium, today's central and southern Iraq. But its direct influence spread further up the Tigris and Euphrates into northern Iraq and Syria and as far as the Mediterranean coast. Further west at the time Ornamu lived, most of Europe was made up of people in Neolithic, pre-Bronze Age cultures. The Minoans of Crete, however, had an advanced society, a Bronze Age civilization that traded throughout the eastern Mediterranean. The Hittites had probably just arrived in Anatolia, a region with advanced farming and bronze working, but probably not what we would think of as a complex civilization. To their south, Syria did have more complex city-states, heavily influenced by the Sumerian civilization, if not actually controlled by them. Assur was one of these cities, and the old Assyrian Empire is considered to have started around this time. The old kingdom of Egypt had already crumbled, the pyramids already built, and the middle kingdom was beginning to reunite the cities of the Nile. To the east, the Harappan, or Indus Valley, civilization also had a complex state, based in modern-day Pakistan and western India. The Bronze Age had really just emerged in China, around the Yellow River Valley. They were probably still a few hundred years away from really becoming an urbanized civilization. And in the Western Hemisphere, while Mesoamerica hadn't yet progressed beyond simple farming societies, the Norte Chico civilization had emerged in Peru, Norte Chico had been flourishing for over a thousand years with advanced irrigation techniques and urban centers. Back to Sumer in southern Mesopotamia. To its east lay mountainous territory in today's southeastern Iran, known as Elam. According to Henry Freeman in his Sumerians, A History from Beginning to End, quote, Elamites were heavily influenced by Sumer, yet they had a distinct language and were not politically part of Mesopotamia. The relationship between Sumerians and Elamites is characterized as hostile, with warfare being pervasive. This debilitated trade crossing the Iranian plateau and is blamed on the cultural divide that separated the two civilizations. Unquote. To the west, in the deserts of Syria, lived what the Sumerians called in their language the people of the west, Martu, also known as the Amorites. To the north were the Syrian city states that rivaled those of Sumer. The only early Sumerian ruler we know much about is Gilgamesh, probably a real king of Uruk who reigned sometime in the first half of the 3rd millennium BC. He's a little too well known for this podcast though, but I can still talk a bit about the world he lived in as we describe what the heck Sumer was and bring us to present day. Present day for our story, that is, a little over 4,000 years ago, somewhere around 2000 BC. The gathering of people together into cities is what really started what is defined as civilization, as opposed to what is defined as culture. And Sumer was one of the first, maybe the first place, where this happened. The Sumerians, the early ones at least, didn't call themselves Sumerians. That was an Akkadian name. And when Akkadian became the lingua franca of the region, it sort of stuck. Or at least it's stuck for like 4,500 years so far. The original Sumerians, as far as we know, used the term sag-giga, which means something like black-headed or black-haired people. Throughout the 3rd millennium BC, the dawn of the Bronze Age, trade networks sprang up not only to move bronze, as well as the copper and tin needed to make it, but other goods too. We actually mention this a bit in the episode on Supaluliuma and the Hittites. Karum, derived from the Sumerian word for port, were Akkadian and Assyrian trade districts set up in central Anatolia to facilitate these networks. This trade may have also helped influence cultures and civilizations outside of Sumer, spreading ideas and technologies north into the Caucasus, west to Anatolia, and to Egypt, perhaps into Nubia and Ethiopia as well, and east into Elam and beyond. There is even solid evidence of some amount of trade at the time between Sumer and India. There have been objects from the Sumerian city of Ur found at the Indus Valley civilization sites in today's Pakistan, and trade between the two may have mostly flowed through the island of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. Eridu, though, was the first city, according to the Sumerians. From their perspective, Eridu was the first city in the world, and as Paul Krivacek writes in his book Babylon, Eridu was the place where, quote, all ancient Mesopotamians knew that civilization had begun, unquote. Parochial for them, sure, but in this case, they may have actually been correct. It was founded prior to 5000 BC, approximately when a deluge flooded much of lower Mesopotamia. This flood may have been the same one recorded in the book of Genesis, and something that we've learned in the last few centuries was also recorded in the much earlier Epic of Gilgamesh. Eridu was near the mouth of the Euphrates at the Persian Gulf at the time. Today, it's a bit inland thanks to a few thousand years worth of silt from the uh, Potamias that the land was Meso. Eridu and its neighboring cities led a development that can conceivably be considered the first civilization before even the first dynasties of Egypt. Krivacek writes, quote, from before 4000 BCE, over the next 10 to 15 centuries, the people of Eridu and their neighbors laid the foundations for almost everything that we know as civilization. It has been called the urban revolution, though the invention of cities was actually the least of it. With the city came the centralized state, the hierarchy of social classes, the division of labor, organized religion, monumental building, civil engineering, writing, literature, sculpture, art, music, education, mathematics, and law, unquote. Eridu led the way, but Uruk became the largest city, with about 50,000 people as early as 3500 BC. But other cities, Ur, Lagash, Kish, Uma, Nippur, to name a few, grew in the region, some more powerful than others, as city-states formed. It's hard to call this Sumer an empire, It seemed to be a collection of relatively independent city-states. Some may have held dominance over others at times, but it was probably pretty uncommon to have all the city-states beholden to one at any one time. Writing had developed in the latter half of the 4th millennium BC, and after another half a millennium or so, it had moved from hieroglyphic-like pictographs into symbols that represented sounds. Cuneiform, which they invented, was still a massive alphabet though with maybe 500 different signs or more used as it slowly transitioned. It seems like it may have been made to facilitate trade and commerce judging by the amount of accounting ledgers that have survived from the period. By about 3000 BC, the city-states were becoming real centers of power, and the next 100 years or so is when what we call the early dynastic period is said to have kicked off. Krivacek writes, quote, it took no more than a few centuries for the city-state, familiar from classical Greece to modern Singapore, fully to take shape, for warlords and kings to replace priests as dominant powers, for the relatively egalitarian society of religious rule to fragment into classes of rich and poor, weak and strong, unquote. Traditionally, what is considered the first real empire may be the first in the entire world, was started when a man named Sargon conquered the Sumerian city-states. Sargon had actually conquered a somewhat united Sumer. In the time before Sargon's conquest, around 2300 BC, there were kings and dynasties, but we don't know much at all about the individuals. They, of course, organized in part to protect themselves from external threats. You know, like when someone explores a nearby village and instead of learning some new technology, they unleash a horde of barbarians. Security, from walls to weapons, was an essential part of gathering in a city. Irrigation and the need to access water, as well as the land these waters fed, were probably some of the biggest factors in conflict between city-states, which eventually led to one dominating over another. As the cities grew, places such as Eridu needed rulers to guide them. Initially, these leaders were essentially priest kings, religious and cultural leaders for the people. But it was during the early dynastic period before Sargon that the shift began and civil authority became separated from the priesthood, although religion remained fundamentally intertwined with the culture and authority there. According to Freeman, Quote, the Sumerians built their societies with pride and felt that their city life made them superior to others. Their patriarchal societies were complex. They developed a social structure that was hierarchical, with an upper, middle, and lower class. Mostly, common people grew dependent on the nobles or priests for their survival, given the threats that the city-states faced. Women had rights, and some managed to become financially independent, unquote. Prior to the conquests of Sargon, the Sumerian city-states fought against each other for power, and several dynasties named after their cities ruled over regions simultaneously. In this time period, cities like Ur, Kish, and Uruk were at times ascendant, perhaps at the same time, and are mentioned multiple times as different dynasties on a document known as the Sumerian Kings List. More than one of these kings did rule over the whole region or close to it. Lugal-Anamundu, who lived in the 2400s, was named king of Sumer on the list, and he is recorded to have conquered the entire world, which, who knows, but it probably meant Sumer. But even if he was able to subjugate the Sumerian city-states, this unity disintegrated after he died. In maybe the late 2300s BC, a king named Lugal-Zage-Si Ruled first from the city of Uma when he launched an attack on their nearby rival city of Lagash. He soon was able to conquer or at least obtain the submission of several other major city states, including Kish, Ur, Nippur, and Uruk. He established dominance throughout much of Sumer and perhaps some beyond. Although anything beyond Sumer, like north and Syria, may have really been more alliances than direct or even indirect rule. In conquering Kish and ousting their king, though, he made a new enemy. Supposedly the cupbearer to the king of Kish, Sargon somehow took over Kish at the northern edges of Sumer, and then he took the rest of Lugolzaghe empire, as well as Lugolzaghe Si himself at Uruk. Sargon, or Sargon the Great, had established the Akkadian Empire, named after the city he founded as his new capital. He wasn't Sumerian himself, it seems. He spoke a Semitic language that is now called Akkadian, although it probably wasn't at the time since he hadn't found an Akkad yet, but hey, you never know. Even if nothing really did before, his certainly fits any definition of an empire, and it lasted over 150 years, from when he started taking Sumerian city-states to when it finally collapsed. There is some evidence of a major global climatic event. That caused a drought for much of the 2100s and probably helped cause the end of this empire, as well as the old kingdom of Egypt, and several other cultures, as well as driving significant migration elsewhere. We don't know for sure, but we do know that it did collapse, and it was either followed by, or perhaps also caused by, the Gutian invasion. The Gutians lived northeast of Sumer in the Zagros Mountains, and they destroyed the city of Akkad. They were probably not part of a complex civilization. They ruled over the region for about a century, but did not do it well, neglecting the maintenance of the canals, causing economic collapse, and worsening the effects of the drought. The Gutian dynasty seemed to have been led by either multiple kings or something of a rotation of leaders. But out of the yoke of Gutian dominance emerged Utu Hengel or Utul Hegel, leader of the city of Uruk. He gathered a force, perhaps over the course of several years, and began pushing the foreign conquerors back. He, at the behest of the god Enlil, of course, took a large force north along the Euphrates River before marching northeast along a canal. The Gutians sent emissaries to negotiate, and the Sumerian king put them in chains. Then, According to the victory of Utu Hangel, which was found on a cuneiform tablet, he encountered the Gutian army and, quote, He laid a trap there behind the Gutian. Utu the mighty man, defeated their generals. Then Tiragan, the king of Gutian, ran away alone on foot. He thought himself safe in Dabrum, where he fled to save his life. But since the people of Dabrum knew that Utu Hangul was a king endowed with power by Enlil, they did not let Tiragan go. And an envoy of Utu-Hengel arrested Tirigan together with his wife and children in Dabrum, unquote. The poem finishes with the line that Utu-Hengel brought back the kingship of Sumer. Unquote. It is probably in his lifetime that the famous Sumerian kings list was first compiled as a way to legitimize his rule. After expelling the Gutians, he wanted to restore the administrative capabilities of the Akkadian Empire. He almost certainly appointed governors, perhaps even keeping some that had worked for the Gutians, but had properly submitted to him. Ornamu was his leader in the city of Or. He was also uthul son son-in-law. What we don't know is which one of those titles came first. It's entirely possible that he was some sort of sub-king, head of that city-state, before a marriage of political alliance to Utu Hangel's daughter. But most seem to believe that he may have even been an outsider to the city of Ur, appointed by the king. Maybe he fought alongside Utu at the battle that defeated the Gutians. Even as a deputy to the great king, ur tried to start his career as a conqueror early on. Archaeologists have found little cones with writing on them, marking the border between the cities of Lagash and Ur after a boundary dispute during Utu reign. It infers that the Man of Ur was the aggressor in the dispute and Utu Hengel had to step in to calm things down. But Utu Hengel died by some dates 2048 BC, but in general about six or seven years after he kicked out the Gutians. He was inspecting a dam and was killed in an accident. This seems a bit ironic as surely some of the driving force behind his victories were pushback from how much the Gutians had let the country's infrastructure waste away. And this didn't just mean canals, it meant the dams too. Now, although it is possible that the boundary dispute had made Ornamu consider or even start rebelling against his father in law, we don't have any evidence of that. We only know that after Utu Hangel's death, down in Or, Ornamu saw an opportunity. Or was another powerful Sumerian city. It had been the dominant city state several times during the early dynastic period. The city itself was on, or very close to, the banks of the Persian Gulf at the time. Like Eridu, it's now tens of miles inland. Ornamu quickly turned his attention to Uruk, essentially the capital of this new Sumerian wannabe empire, and he took it. How? No idea. We haven't found any records with details of this. It's fair to speculate that, Considering Utu Hengel died in an accident less than a decade after beginning his reign, there might not have been a solid succession plan. The extant sources say that Urnamu took Uruk by conquest, but don't mention any sort of actual war. So, he probably wasn't named heir by his father-in-law and just peacefully walked into Uruk and donned the crown. Maybe he went up there with some troops but whether he fought an actual conflict or was just welcomed in by a disorganized group of Urukites or Urukians or whatever, anyway, he was the man now. Ornamu had to conquer the cities of Sumer beyond just Uruk, although it is likely that many submitted to him once they saw he was powerful enough to take and keep the other cities. We do know that he defeated Namakni, the ruler of Lagash, that probably felt pretty good after previously getting the smackdown from Utu Hangul on the border dispute with Lagash. But there were other cities that were stronger and bigger threats to his new empire. He took Nippur, which may well have been when he decided to style himself the king of Sumer and Akkad. Akkad itself had been destroyed by the Gutians. Nippur was important, though, because it was considered a sacred or holy city. It wasn't really a powerful city-state. It was the only major Sumerian city that didn't even have a palace. Rather, control of Nippur was essential if one wanted to say he controlled any sort of real kingdom because of its religious significance. Ornamu took control of Nippur and began to build there. He put up a temple to Enlil, the city's patron god, and he rebuilt or fortified the city walls that had been put up by Sargon's grandson, the Akkadian ruler Naram-Sin. He built upon a lot of Akkadian works there, which means that maybe they had been destroyed or at least fallen into significant disrepair under the Gutians. If buildings weren't maintained, the mud bricks tended to crumble after years. And so, neglect rather than actual destruction could be almost as bad to these buildings. Ornamu also had built under his reign the Great Ziggurat of Ur, a temple dedicated to the moon god, Nanna in Sumerian, Sin in the Semitic languages. Nanna was the patron god of Ur, and the ziggurat was impressive. Perhaps, if he was indeed from the city, from his perspective it could have been the most important building project he undertook. It was massive, at its base about 210 feet by 150 feet, let's say 65 by 45 if you're into meters. And it could have been nearly a hundred feet high. It fell to ruin over the centuries and was repaired by a Babylonian emperor named Nabonidus in the 5th century BC. Nabonidus recorded that the base layer, which was still significant, was all that remained, so he rebuilt on top of that. According to the Cambridge Ancient History, quote, The main structure still exists, impressive alike by its plan, its mass, and the excellence of its construction and materials. Two or three later kings who undertook to repair this gigantic pile have left traces of what seem by comparison pygmy hands upon it. The last builder, Nabonidus, relates that it was begun by Ornamu and carried on by his son, but that even he did not complete the work. Unquote. The ziggurat of ore had been partially repaired in modern times. The base layer that Ornamu built still remains, but much of the facade has been rebuilt, and upper layers have been added once again this time by a local ruler named Saddam Hussein. Like Utu Hengel had started to do, if Ornamu wanted to rule an empire effectively, he had to make sure it was functional. So aside from the temples, which were actually crucial pieces of infrastructure and power bases, he also built or rebuilt many canals. He built a canal that divided the lands of Lagash and Ur, and, from the Cambridge ancient history again, quote, Since Ornamu goes on to celebrate the justice he had established, we may surmise that his canal took a different line from that imposed upon Or in the day of his subordination to Utu Hengel, He built other canals, which likely improved the agricultural output that had been decimated under the Gutians. The canals certainly helped revive trade, which is attested in several inscriptions, as the canals were also a major line of transportation. Ornamu also left a legacy as a temple builder. He built ziggurats and other temples in many cities, including Ur, Uruk, and Nippur. But his biggest legacy may have been that of a lawgiver. The first set of laws from the regions weren't laid out in that famous code of Hammurabi. Ornamu had a code of laws that were written down some 300 years earlier. Another Sumerian king from the early dynastic period Urukagina, actually had some legal code written down in the 24th century BC, though it may have been pretty limited and it doesn't survive. It's possible that Urnamu's laws expanded on these. The code of laws that he introduced, though, although not complete, were enough to be considered the first real extant ones in history. No, he probably wasn't the first ever king to write down laws, but the fact that he's the first to write ones that we can still see today is important. We don't know how comprehensive the ones before him were. His may have been the leap forward that led to the Code of Hammurabi three centuries later. It dealt with both civil and criminal matters, and what got you executed, like murder, robbery, and rape. It explained what might deserve a fine, such as kidnapping, perjury, or knocking out someone's eye. It was three centuries until the fine for that last one was your own eye. These laws may have been put together in part to try and reassert the norms of Sumerian culture over that of the Akkadian and then Gutian cultures that had been dominant for the previous few centuries. Ornamu did not take the title of king of the four quarters as some before and some after had, suggesting he didn't feel as if he had conquered the whole known world. The Four Quarters, by the way, were Sumer in the south, Elam in the east, Syria and the Amorites in the west, and northern Mesopotamia in the north. Of course, there is some disconnect here because we know they had trade with people from beyond these regions and must have known of the existence of a world beyond the Four Quarters. Ornamu died probably after being mortally wounded in battle against the Gutians, who were still a threat. We know of his death thanks to a poem known as the death of Ornamu and his descent into the underworld. It was probably written not long after he died, maybe by someone who knew him or at least lived under his rule. We can presume the poet knew a thing about the first subject, and we can probably assume he didn't know much about the second. According to Samuel Noah Kramer in his article for the Journal of Cuneiform Studies, it begins by detailing how fearful and sorrowful the people of Sumer and Akkad were at the news of the king's death. Then, quote, There follows a poorly preserved passage that probably concerns the manner in which the king died. He had, it seems, been wounded and killed in battle and later brought to Ur for burial, Ornamu descends to the underworld, as the title of the poem suggests, and he starts meeting gods. Here's a little bit of the translation. Quote, Ornamu, they announced to the people, a tumult arose in the netherworld. The king slaughters oxen. They seated Ornamu at a huge banquet. Bitter is the food of the netherworld. Brackish is the water of the netherworld. The righteous king, his heart knew the gods of the netherworld. The king offers the gifts of the netherworld as sacrifices. Unquote. It goes on, he meets Gilgamesh and a bunch of Sumerian gods. He laments that he had to be killed despite his piety. He gets really sad and mopey. And then the goddess Inanna sticks up for him and blesses him. And then... Well, then we really don't know, because the rest of the cuneiform tablet had crumbled away. This is actually a common problem with cuneiform tablets. We often lose some of the top and some of the bottom. That was probably the first time in this podcast that we've talked much about the subject's actions after his death. We usually instead follow what happened, you know, there on earth. In this case, we know that Ornamu's son Shulgi succeeded him and maintained control over the new empire. Ornamu had started a new dynasty, one that ruled over the traditional lands of Sumer in southern Mesopotamia and beyond. Today, it is known as the Third Dynasty of Ur, or Ur III. It is also sometimes called the Neo-Sumerian Empire, and after two centuries of foreign rule, Sargon's Akkadian dynasty followed by the Gutians, native Sumerians were once again in charge of their own lands. The Neo-Sumerian Empire had a tightly administered economy, as evidenced by literally tens of thousands of administrative documents that have turned up for study. For example, its citizens owed the state some amount of service during the year. According to Krivochek, quote, a concept known as bala, meaning something like crossover or exchange, a kind of tax and redistribute policy, required that every province pay grain and livestock into a central resource, unquote. This was an advanced society, perhaps attempting something that had never really been done in that scope and size. Ornamu's son Shulgi ruled for nearly 50 years, and he continued to expand the empire. He made punitive attacks against the Gutians, and then he attacked Elam. He probably completed the great ziggurat of war that his father had begun. His sons ruled for the next couple of decades before Ibisin, Ornamu's great-grandson, became king. In his almost 25 years of rule, repeated attacks from the Amorites in the west began to wear on the cohesion of the empire. The cities on the edge of the empire stopped sending in taxes early on in his reign. A decade in, the Bala system had broken down, and eventually distant city-states declared independence. The Amorites began to take cities, and soon Ur was ruling over a much smaller area. But the actual end of the empire came from the east, when the Elamites sacked Ur, and dragged ibi back with them. At its height, the dynasty that ur namu founded ruled all of Sumer and most of the Fertile Crescent. Their power stretched from Ur and Eridu near the Persian Gulf, up the Euphrates and Tigris to cities such as Nippur, Kish, Babylon, and Akkad, further up the Euphrates into Syria to former capitals of rival kingdoms such as Mati and Ebla, and maybe all the way to biblos on the shores of the mediterranean according to freeman quote ornamu made cultural advancements a goal of his administration and maintained a peace so that the arts and technology could flourish after utul had pushed the gutian invaders out of the heart of sumer ornamu was the one who really turned this new kingdom into a large empire he helped extend the territory and he incorporated the reforms needed to keep his new dynasty in charge for over a century. And really for the last time before the Semitic cultures like the Kassites in Babylon and the Assyrians up north became dominant, Ornamu rekindled the Sumerian culture's power. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next time, we'll move ahead over 13 centuries, and move a little bit west, into Africa, to talk about a conquering outsider who united an ancient civilization and set up a new dynasty of his own. Thanks for listening.